This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello, welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa and you can find us on 9625 kilohertz. That is on the 31 meter band in Southern Africa. You can also find us on 802 in the DSTV audio bouquet. I am Spumela Lezondi and I'm with Onel Ntinti with Sani Matebula and Musibudi Makura. The top stories. Sudanese president on a state visit to Ethiopia. Gambias are casting their ballots in their first parliamentary elections. In economics, Africa's prime real estate market recorded mixed performances as the continent readjusts to a decline in global commodity prices. And in sports, the government of Madagascar honored in the newly elected president of the Confederation of African Football, yes, on Lenzinzi. Thank you, Spoo. Polls have been open in the Gambia's first parliamentary elections since the departure of the country's former long-time leader, Yaya Jemay. The election presents the first tough political challenge to the West African nation's new president, Aramaboro, who is seeking a majority of the legislature to pass a host of legal and constitutional reforms. Baro leads a coalition of eight parties who are contesting the opposition. Head of the African Union Election Observer Mission in the Gambia, Terry Tselani. There is uh, a feeling of excitement amongst people. Uh, many stations that we have visited, there are quite a number of people who have been uh, coming in numbers to uh, participate in this process. And uh, we are hopeful that um, they will be able to reach the targets that they have set for themselves uh, by the end of this process. Parliament in South Africa says National Assembly Speaker Balegambete has communicated with the three political parties that have requested a debate for motion of no confidence in President Jacob Zuma. This comes after Mbete, the leader of government business and the chief whip of the majority party, agreed that the motion will be debated on the 18th of this month. It comes after opposition parties, the DA and EFF, requested that the Assembly reconvene urgently to debate the motion. Parliament spokesperson Molodo Mutabo. Following the decision that was arrived at for after consultation around the motion of no confidence, we can confirm that uh, the Speaker has written and sent letters to the parties that have requested this motion, and those are the DA, the EFF, and the UDM. Meanwhile, the NC caucus in Parliament has confirmed it will vote against the motion of no confidence in President Jacob Zuma brought by the opposition parties DA, EFF and UDM. The parties say that it will also not support the call for a secret ballot during the voting process. The debate on the motion will take place on the 18th of this month. Mercedes Besant has more. The office of the Chief Whip Jackson Mtembu says the ANC in Parliament will abide by the ANC National Working Committee's decision announced by ANC Secretary General Gwera Mantashe that the ANC does not and will not support the motion. The majority party says its MPs have been inundated with what it calls mischievous calls, text messages and emails by faceless individuals and organizations lobbying ANC MPs not to toe the party line. It says such calls seek to suggest that the ANC MPs are free agents. The Chief Whip's office says, and I quote, The very same opposition making these calls have always voted along party lines, yet they expect ANC MPs not to be guided and directed by their political party, closed quotes. Nigeria's Federal High Court has charged a former oil minister, Diazani Alison Madweke, with money laundering in an election bribery scandal. Alison Madweke is the first minister from former President Goodluck Jonathan's cabinet to be formally charged. Prosecutors allege that she paid bribes to three electoral officials the day before the March 2015 presidential elections. The office of President Muhammadu Buhari voted into power last year, vows to stamp out endemic graphs in Africa's most populous country. 
And lastly, Sudan President Omar al-Bashir is in Ethiopia for an official state visit. During his visit, he is meeting with the government's top leadership to discuss aspects of strengthening the bilateral ties between Ethiopia and Sudan, as well as the Horn of Africa region. Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Halimarim Desaleh. Any uh, security problem in Sudan is our problem, and any security problem in Ethiopia is Sudanese problem. This is for the benefit of not only our two countries, but we also in-depth discussed about the peace and security in South Sudan, and similarly of Somalia, which is also very important for both Sudan and Ethiopia. So we at length deliberated on the issue of how to make Somalia to reconstruction, and as well as securing fully from Al-Shabaab problems in Somalia. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinsi. Thank you very much, Onelio. Your time is 17.06 Central African time right here on Channel Africa, the African perspective. You can find us on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za if you want to send us emails. Now, Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir is in Ethiopia for an official state visit. During his visit, he is meeting with the government, its top leadership, to discuss aspects of strengthening the bilateral ties between Ethiopia and Sudan, as well as in the Horn of Africa region. Sudan's President Omar el-Bashir began his official visit to Ethiopia on 4th of April. He has already had talks with the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Haile Mariam Desalen, who says security in the region has been one of the main issues of discussion. Any uh, security problem in Sudan is our problem, and any security problem in Ethiopia is Sudanese problem. This is for the benefit of not only our two countries, but we also in-depth discussed about the peace and security in South Sudan and similarly of Somalia, uh, which is also very important for both Sudan and Ethiopia. So we at length deliberated on the issue of how to make uh, Somalia to reconstruction and uh, uh, as well as uh, 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 securing fully from uh, the Al-Shabaab uh, Uh, problems in Somalia. So we said uh, we in the Horn of Africa countries, we are the same people and should integrate quickly and bring about peace and stability and prosperity to our people. The Ethiopian Great Renaissance Dam that is still under construction and expected to generate 6,000 megawatts of power once completed also made it to the list of top priorities for discussion between Premier Haile Mariam and President Bashir. Sudan is among the parties that are part of a tripartite agreement about the construction of the dam signed after Egypt opposed the construction on the Nile years ago. Egypt, Sudan and Ethiopia have been having meetings to decide and ensure the construction of the dam does not affect the interests of Egypt and Sudan on River Nile. President Omar el-Bashir explains. As far as the Renaissance Dam is concerned, all the aspects of the environmental consequences and the economic and socio-economic consequences are all under focus now. It is the first time that the three countries come to agreement. As part of his three-day visit, President Bashir is visiting Ethiopia's industrial projects. The two countries already have standing agreements of cooperation in power, security, livestock, transport and railway, among others. Koleto Anjohi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. It's 17.09 Central African time. Now, three members of parliament who were asked recently by South African President Jacob Zuma resigned as MPs. Former Transport Minister Deboer Peters yesterday, while former Deputy Finance Minister Mbisi Janus and a former Energy Minister Tina Jomot Peterson followed suit this morning. Last week, Zuma made a shocking yet expected midnight cabinet reshuffle, which saw these MPs removed from their posts along with Pravin Gordon, who was removed as the country's finance minister. To talk to us more on this, we're joined on the line by Professor of Politics at the University of South Africa, Dirk Gotter. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. 
Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Mm. Now, what can we read from this? The, the first explanation is a very straightforward one, and that is that in terms of the uh, retirement uh, agreements that exist with members of parliament and members of the, the government, at the moment a person retires as a minister, they will receive a ministerial uh, retirement package. If they have been a minister but then goes back to become a minister or a member of parliament, they lose their ministerial uh, package and they have, will only have retired as a member of parliament. So that has happened uh, also in 2014. The MP minister resigned um, for the same reason because they were not reappointed as minister. Um, and therefore they resigned in order to retain or, or keep their ministerial package for their for retirement. Um, so it has been a purely financial consideration that uh, quite a number of persons are, are using uh, in order to decide whether they will continue. There's only a few exceptions. One of them is the former Minister um, of Communication and uh, in different positions, and actually Yusuf Karim, who went back just as an ordinary minister of parliament, a member of parliament, and he was subsequently appointed as the chairperson of the portfolio committee on finance. But that's really the exception. Uh, but so these three had already been replaced. We have had um, the new ministers working for about a week now. So does that mean that um, they would still keep their packages even though they were pretty much fired last week? Yes, there is a certain cut-off period, so they have some some time to consider their future. Um, so, in, in their, their cases, my information is that it is not too late for them yet to resign, uh, and therefore they will keep their their, their retirement packages as, as ministers, um, and and not that of therefore of only a member of parliament. So, in, in that sense, it is within time, um, but it is it is an urgent decision that they will have to take. The interesting decisions, I think, will be that of someone like, for example, the former Minister of Finance, Pravin Gordon. Uh, what what decision is he going to take? Will he follow suit with him, or will he go back as an ordinary member of Parliament? Mm-hmm. Um, there has been a suggestion that um, some of them are trying to take a bigger stand. So you don't think they're trying to take a bigger stand um, than just keep their ministerial packages? No, I, I, I would personally say that this is the, 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 the most important consideration. I don't think this is a way of saying that um, it is a way of a moral uh, statement that they are making by resigning from Parliament. Um, it is rather, uh, I would say, these considerations, their personal considerations, and not so much about a, a bigger statement, a more of a political statement that they are making uh, through this resignation. Um, I think that the person that comes maybe comes closest to that might be the minister, the minister of finance, who has been right in the middle of the fire um, for more than a year already. Um, so his resignation might be interpreted like that. But even in this case, I would say maybe his personal situation has been had been more important or more of a consideration um, than trying to make a political statement through this. So are we likely to see him resigning then? Because he has been quite outspoken about what's been taking place with his um, relationship and the president. Yes, well, the, the deputy president, uh, Jonas, he, he did resign now. Uh, as, as I said, in the case of, of Minister Kevin Gordon, that is at this stage completely unclear. He has not given any indication. He spoke last night here in Pretoria. I, I attended the the event, uh, and there was no reference whatsoever to that. So in, it looked like he's, he's moving forward. He's very much involved in, um, in going all over the country to address uh, memorials of the former uh, uh, Ahmed Um And in, in, in doing that, um, he has not, not referred to his own position whatsoever. So in that sense, I think he, keep, he keeps it very close to himself. And uh, we will, but we will have to hear about that in the, the next few days. Otherwise, he's going to miss the cutoff point.
Now, there's a proposed motion of no confidence that's to be debated on the 18th against President Jacob Zuma. Um, do you think that the resignation of these ministers is probably losing um, those that want that motion to be passed, um, some people who could have voted for it? Uh, Professor Kotze? Hello. All right, we seem to have lost Professor Dirk Gotze. Your time is 17.15 Central African time. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Kia makande embalelwa kina Miriam. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Your time is 17.16 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the African perspective. Now Malawi and its northern neighbor Tanzania have set a deadline for talks on the disputed Lake Malawi after a four-year stalemate. Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation Minister Francis Kasaila said the two countries have agreed this year to end as a dead this year end as a deadline rather for the talks this follows the meeting of president peter motarika and his Tanzanian counterpart john magufuli recently had in addis ababa in ethiopia mediation to resolve the dispute has been stalled since 2012 but will be revived under the supervision of former mozambican president joachim chisano our correspondent george mohango is in planta hello george Hello, how are you this evening? I'm all right. Now, George, what does this mean two weeks ago um, on World Water Day? President Peter Mutarika declared that the lake belongs to Malawi. Okay, what uh, this uh, definitely means is the fact that uh, uh, these uh, leaders from the two countries, including uh, former heads of state Tabombeki uh, of South Africa, Joaquim Chisan of Mozambique, and then Festus Muhai of Botswana are supposed to ensure that uh, discussions over the uh, Lake Rango between Adedoma and Longwe should come to a conclusion uh, by the end of this year. As you might recall, that uh, at the recent uh, summit in uh, Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, President Peter Mutarika indicated that he had some discussions with uh, Johnny Magofuri, President of Tanzania, but that they did not uh, discuss much as to what they should do so that uh, they conclude this issue. But based on what the Foreign Affairs Minister Francis Casaira has said, that's an indication that uh, the two countries are discussing so that this issue is put to rest. Mm-hmm. Um, does this mean then that um, President Mutarika is backtracking when um, on his statement that he said it belongs to Malawi? Uh, basically, well, if, if, I, if I can hear you properly, what, um, what, what, what this definitely currently means is that uh, uh, the, the, the late issue, uh, because it was a very contentious issue, and it remains a contentious issue, why? Because uh, Tanzania did produce its own map, indicating that uh, part of uh, Lake Malawi, which to some uh, extent they call it Lake Nyasa, that side, uh, belongs to them, which Longwe was refuting to say that uh, Malawi owns the whole lake. And of course, recently, Mutalika indeed indicated also something that is very contradictory. He indicated that uh, there is no need for discussions because the lake belongs to Malawi. And this, he said uh, just two weeks ago, uh, when he was, uh, you know, attending a World Water Day event close to Mozambique. 
So it's like something that people are not taking uh, it uh, seriously to some extent, but at the same time they're taking it seriously. Why? Because two contradictory statements. The Foreign Affairs Minister saying that uh, by end of this year, this issue will be uh, discussed, it will be over. At the same time, the President says no need for discussion. So it's like, you know, uh, troubling the minds of various people on the ground. Why is this lake so important? What's in the lake? Come again? What is in the lake that makes it that makes the lake so important to the two countries? Okay, what uh, based on uh, some of the geologists, um, uh, 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 they are saying that uh, in the lake there is oil, and the time that uh, Malawi, you know, invited Shiloh a British-based company, to start drilling oil in Lake Malawi, that was the time that uh, Tanzania felt that uh, they had to ensure that the lake is also part and parcel of them. And some fishers were being arrested. Uh, those Malawian fishers, you know, are fishing close to Tanzania. They were arrested. And that was the time when uh, uh, former President Joyce Banda was in power. And at the same time, uh, when uh, Peter Mutarga came into power, uh, the Shua Stream Company, its operations were suspended. So it's like an issue of oil in the lake. So the two countries would like to maybe share some spoils. At the same time, Malawi says it's no need for uh, negotiations with the lake belongs to Malawi. So, but it's an issue of oil. Was there ever such a dispute before they found out that there's a possibility that there could be oil in the lake? There wasn't, I mean, there hasn't been any dispute dating back to 1891 when uh, there was a treaty that was signed by um, uh, uh, the, the German, the Germans, and then the Britain, the Britons. Uh, that was called like the Hedgeland Treaty, which in, which 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 gave Malawi uh, the, the, the much needed mandate to have the whole or to own the whole lake. And uh, since 1891, thereabout to 2012. That's when this dispute resurfaced. But at the time when Dr. Nisim Gamutubanda, the first head of state of Malawi, was in power, this issue was not a uh, talk of the nation because Nisim uh, Gamutubanda and uh, that country's uh, former president, Julius Nyerere, had a common uh, a feeling that the lake belongs to Malawi. So it's like the dispute has just resurfaced just about maybe some five years ago, in 2012, when Joyce Banda was in power. Mm-hmm. And can you just tell us about, you mentioned briefly that there are mediators, they include Joachim Chisano, they I- include um, a former South African president, Begi. Can you just tell us about their role as mediators here? Uh, indeed, uh, the, the, the mediators, these were, you know, uh, uh, put uh, into effect by uh, the uh, Sadiq uh, Tribunal to ensure that uh, this issue is discussed and then understood properly by the two uh, countries. So Tsabombeki, uh, Joaquin Chisano, Festus Mohayo, Boswana, they have done their part, but still more it's an issue of finances, because uh, they, 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 these mediators are saying that the Malayas do contribute some money to have the mediation talks, because, you know, these people have to fly uh, to, to different, uh, to, to, to Tanzania, and then to Malaria, and then back to their respective countries. So it's an issue of Malawi contributing some finances, Tanzania contributing some finances towards the uh, you know uh, logistical issues for the mediators. But what is very clear, and one thing that is certain, is the fact that quite a number of uh, local commentators, legal commentators, are saying that uh, there is no need for discussion. And I can call, I can recall that one renowned lawyer uh, by the name of is uh, a private practice lawyer. He once said if Tanzania doesn't want to uh, hold this kind of a discussion, then Malawi should just take this issue to the International Criminal Court uh, of Justice so that at least there can be some you know, discussions and then some legal interpretation over the issue. Uh-huh. All right. Thank you very much for joining us and giving us some clarity on what's happening here. Thank you very much. George Mohangode is our correspondent in Blantai in Malawi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, 
Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Your time is 17.24 Central African time. Now, polls have opened in the Gambia where citizens are casting their ballots in the first parliamentary election since the departure of the country's former long-time leader, Yaya Jameh. The election presents the first tough political challenge to the West African nation's new president, Adama Barrow, who is seeking a majority in the legislature to pass a host of legal and constitutional reforms. Barrow leads a coalition of eight parties who are contesting the opposition Gambia Democratic Congress and the former President Diaya Jamez Alliance for Patriotic Reorientation and Construction Parties. Terry Zelane is head of the African Union Election Observer Mission in the Gambia. There's a lot of excitement, as you can imagine. Everybody uh, is really looking forward to participating in these elections. And I think uh, there is a spirit of positivity and, 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 and goodwill that exists. And that, uh, you know, everyone is uh, hoping that this is going to be ushering a new era in the uh, electoral process in, in Gambia. And how is the turnout like? Uh, do you get a sense that Gambians are uh, excited about these polls? Yes, indeed. Uh, there is uh, a feeling of excitement amongst people. Uh, many stations that we have visited, there are quite a number of people who have been uh, coming in numbers to uh, participate in this process, and uh, we are hopeful that um, they will be able to reach the targets that they have set for themselves uh, by the end of this process. Now, when can we expect the final results uh, to be announced officially? Well, I am not too sure, but I suspect that uh, it is possible that uh, uh, by the end of this, this tomorrow, we will be having an idea. Uh, of uh, who are the winners in various constituencies. What are you reading from the ground in terms of women participation in this uh, election? Well, that's what I have seen um, and the team here that has been observing uh, has seen uh, that uh, women are participating in all the stations that we have visited. Um, I think it's a positive thing, uh, obviously uh, compared to the previous occasion. It shall appear that uh, there is, there's been a, a concerted effort uh, to ensure that uh, the marginalized groups in the society uh, do take part in this process and therefore uh, the participation of women is likely to be higher than probably the previous election. That is Terry Telane. He is the head of African Union Election Observer Mission in the Gambia, talking to Kumbero Munjarere. South African economist Max Schussler says the margin squeeze on South African banks has started following the announcement by ratings agency Standard & Poor's to downgrade seven financial institutions in the country. The agency says that this was necessary as it cannot rank local banks above the foreign currency sovereign credit ratings. Schussler says banks will start paying more to raise capital in the market, which will have a negative impact on the economy. Banking stocks have lost value on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange since President Jacob Zuma's unpopular cabinet reshuffle, which resulted in the removal of Pravin Kordan as finance minister. S&P Global Downgrade, the country's foreign currency credit rating on Monday. FNB, NetBank, Investec, country's foreign currency credit rating on rather APSA, are among the banks that have been affected. Schussler explains. Obviously not good news because they are now going to face a rising cost of capital. So they are also going to start paying more for their interest. They're going to pay more on the market and they look for capital. So their interest rates are going to rise under these circumstances and they're going to face a tough environment because it's going to be difficult for them to pass on this increase onto their consumers. So the margin squeeze on South African banks has started and that means that I'll make less of a profit and that's why their prices fell in the last while and I think mm-hmm. they're down about 15% from when the finance minister was recalled from London. Today they're down about 3%. So ultimately, you know, we're looking at a situation where they will have to be very, very careful when lending. They are going to be even more tight-fisted than before. And that obviously has an impact on the economy because if somebody that previously could get a home loan and now cannot get a home loan, you know, it has repercussions. The estate agent doesn't get paid. The person selling the property can't get paid. The other person has to keep paying rent maybe. 
and that has an impact. And, you know, so it will impact on economic growth mm. as well. But certainly, though, was expected. Mm. Now, let's look at the consumers. Uh, will the consumers, especially those you know who have bonds, motor financing and other debts through the banks, uh, what does this mean for them? Should they be expecting uh, to be charged more for their debt now? No, they'll probably not pay more for their debt. The banks may struggle to raise their, you know, their borrowing costs up. So it's purely, at the moment, a margin squeeze on the banks. What could happen is that the Reserve Bank could later decide to increase interest rates, in which case the consumers will obviously feel the pinch of this. But I think at this moment in time, that's probably not on the cards as inflation is falling, Mm -hmm. and that is the main concern. Mike Schussler is the chief economist at economist.co.za, talking to Zikona Miso. Your news headlines with Onelin Zinzi. South Africa is bracing itself for mass marches in major cities on Friday, organized by the opposition parties, DA and civil society groups, calling on President Jacob Zuma to step down. Polls have been open in the Gambia's first parliamentary elections since the departure of the country's former longtime leader, Yaya Jemay, and former Old Minister Diazani Alison Madweke, the first minister from former President Goodluck Jonathan's cabinet to be formally charged. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinsi. Thank you very much, Onele. Your time is 17.31 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the African perspective. You can find us on Channel Africa 1 on Twitter or info at channelafrica.co.za if you want to send us emails. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, limited data among African men who have sex with men or MSM show that their risk of HIV infection is significantly higher than the general population and in many African countries, their risk is almost double. This is what the Delegates heard at a recent three-day-long meeting in Johannesburg in South Africa, which aimed to share new evidence and experiences around tackling HIV prevention for this population. The meeting was hosted by the Evidence for HIV Prevention in Southern Africa program, and it gathered leading experts in the field, including researchers, policymakers, and programmers from the region. To discuss it further, we joined on the line by Dr. Kevin Reby, a clinician at the South African Non-Governmental Organization the ANOVA Health Institute. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Kevin. Yes, hi. Thank you very much for hosting me. Now, Kevin, can you just tell us about the reason you decided to host this gathering? Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, as you just mentioned, men who have sex with men do have higher rates of HIV um, in all countries than the general heterosexual male population. And um, in many countries, the healthcare access to these populations is uh, complicated by legal or stigmatizing environments. Um, it's complicated by lack of skills from health sectors in uh, being able to meet their healthcare needs. Um, and it really leads to negative health outcomes for these uh, groups of men who have sex with men. Uh-huh. And I'm um, on the African continent specifically because you, you found out that um, in Southern Africa it is uh, quite high, uh, much higher. Why would that be? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a multifactorial problem. Um, there are biological reasons for it. Um, there are situational uh, and contextual reasons for it. So, for example, the risk of acquiring HIV through a receptive, unprotected anal sex um, is about 20 times higher than the risk of acquiring it through unprotected vaginal sex. So, so anybody who, who uh, engages in anal sex, actually be they a man or a woman, um, is at a much higher biological risk of HIV. And the other thing is because these communities are often very stigmatized, um, they don't access healthcare, so they don't go for testing, they don't uh, generally present for counseling or risk reduction messages, uh, and it's very hard to you know, deliver health services to them in a way that they can actually implement to decrease their risk. Mm. Um, 
And the use of protection. You seem to suggest that um, there is much less use of condoms, for example, um, in men who have sex with men. Do we know why that is? Um, are, they, are condoms not readily available to them? Is it a struggle to get them? Yeah. Um, so, firstly, um, for men who have sex with men to use condoms comfortably and effectively, they also need to be provided with sexual lubricants. And in many countries, these lubricants aren't available, and that makes condom use um, sometimes difficult, and condoms are more likely to tear uh, in the absence of a lubricant, particularly in anal sex. So that's one reason. We do know from research that condom rates are very low um, among men who have sex with men, but the reality is that condom rates are very low among men who have sex with women too. So I think just generally, um, people have... Maybe got a bit of prevention message fatigue about condoms. You know, every time you have sex, you must use a condom, and, and people are people are weary and a little bit tired. I think from that messaging. Mm. And are there campaigns in different African countries um, that are t- targeted specifically at men who have sex with um, men, especially when it comes to safety during sex? So absolutely. I think um, there are campaigns from uh, sort of both the top and the bottom. There are many ministries of health now across the African continent who are including these key populations where the HIV risk is very high. You know, that includes men who have sex with men, um, sex workers, uh, people who use drugs. And these ministries are looking at including specific targeted programming to try and address the risk in these key populations in their uh, national health plans. So I think there's quite a lot of top-down work starting to happen. And then when we look at um, NGOs and community-based organizations, they're also trying to procure these products for safety, um, trying to raise awareness among communities about their use and their importance. So I, I do think there is movement on the ground, but we could, of course, be doing a lot more. You mentioned earlier that it's very difficult for men who have sex with um, men to get um, healthcare services. Can you just tell us briefly about that? Yeah, I think that they, there's a lot of both real and perceived stigma and prejudice. Um, it's very difficult for a gay man, um, perhaps in a country where, where that is illegal, um, to come and see a doctor or nurse and really be honest about their sexual behavior. So, you know, when that health provider takes a history, that, that MSN probably won't disclose that he is MSN. And that means that some of the medical interventions that might be useful to lower his HIV risk or prevent STIs just don't get discussed. Um, and, and really what that means is that health provider hasn't met the needs of that particular uh, MSN. And, and we think that's very common, unfortunately. Uh, were there resolutions then that were taken at this conference? Um, so a lot of things were discussed. The conference was very wide-ranging. So, for example, there were a lot of discussions about sexually transmitted infections, which have been increasing in key populations. And there are ways of better screening and treating um, and getting better control of the SDI disease burden um, in MSM. So that was discussed. And there were discussions about policy. So how do you make policies more friendly um, for these key populations, which, as I said, are often considered as as bad people, um, and guiding uh, organizations and governments uh, into trying to do what will have the biggest impact for these populations. So that was a big um, discussion point. And then another discussion point was the use of PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a an extremely effective and safe technology um, that MSN could use to prevent HIV. And and that um, was a key theme at the conference. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Great. Thank you very much. Well, that's Dr. Kevin Reeb. He is a clinician at the South African non-governmental organization, the ANOVA Health Institute. 
Your time is 17.38 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest. My name is Spumele Lezondi. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African time. And remember that you can always send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also find us on Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. That is Channel Africa 1. You're listening to Channel Africa, the African perspective. Labor unions around the world are having to adapt to a fast Changing labor markets. John Evans heads the Trade Union Advisory Committee to the OECD and represents some 65 million organized workers worldwide. Evans says workers are caught in the middle of rapid technological change and slow global growth. From that perspective, I think the, in the current situation, there are, there are two major concerns. One is on the demand side that clearly the labor markets globally haven't fully recovered from the the Great Recession after the Lehman's crash of 2008. We still have 200 million people unemployed. We still have very sluggish growth. And whilst there's been some move away from that, which we've seen in terms of um, better performance and better growth figures, which are now beginning to come through in certain countries, there are big uncertainties about that. So we can't get the, the labor market or the, the real economy moving again um, and try and get growth. And I think above all, probably get global demand up, then the, there's a major problem. The other aspect, I think, of labor markets is, um, is the income side. And what we've seen globally, um, but particularly in certain countries, a generalized rise to greater inequality of labor incomes across uh, the last 30 to 35 years. Uh, Do you think that's more pronounced in developing countries? Well, I think it affects both. I think if you look at the Gini coefficient, then it's increased very significantly in some of the industrialized countries as well. I mean, uh, and, but traditionally there was in the post-war years a period of falling income inequality, whereas now we've seen this jump back to some of the levels that existed in the 1920s. I mean, the IMF itself, its analysis for the industrialized or advanced countries was that half that increase in inequality between the top decile and bottom decile is due to weaker unions, declining unionization. So we've got a very strong interest of trying to make the argument that for broadly based inclusive growth, which is what uh, uh, most institutions now say is their key policy, you've got to have stronger distribution mechanisms as well, pre-distribution mechanisms in the labor market, and that includes collective bargaining unions. So stop attacking that sometimes, stop trying to decentralize it and try and ensure there are good flaws. In developing countries, it's obviously more, more mixed. There's a very high level still of in, informal work, uh, if you call that people outside a kind of a regular economy. So that's the big challenge, you know, 60% overall globally workers outside the, the formal employment. So how do labor market institutions reattach them to, to the labor force is crucially important. We've had some interesting models in the past looking at the emerging economies. I mean, in one sense, obviously, you know, China has been a major factor of, uh, on the world scale, which has had big impact of pulling people out of global poverty. But at the same time now, uh, the Chinese authorities themselves are clearly trying to raise uh, minimum wages and get a different sort of model, which is, is also broader based and trying to look at more at domestic demand, but also reverse some of the big rises they've seen in their uh, of their Gini coefficient inequality, uh, both regionally and between different groups. So a big challenge there about the Chinese model in the future. To what extent do you think that the labor force has been or is being transformed by technology? And how do you see trade unions fitting in? I'd say our assessment at the moment is the impact of technology in the short term is probably going to be less felt in terms of numbers of jobs and the quantitative impact on employment overall and more in terms of the quality of work and potentially also on income distribution. So it's a key issue we're looking at. I think on the question of the quantitative effect, if we look at past waves of technological change, there are major requirements in terms of looking at the labor force adjustment, trying to make sure workers have new skills, trying to make sure there's the policies to help them move to new sorts of jobs, making sure that they have a, a sense of security and protection in that change process. In past periods sometimes, and past countries, in different countries, that's sometimes been managed well, sometimes it's been managed badly, but it's certainly a feature of history. Um, is there something very different now that will mean 
the traditional view that there was, a, you know, the, the idea that there was a lump of labour uh, which had to be uh, distributed between different workers. Uh, the view that that was a fallacy, whether it still is a fallacy, I don't know. I mean, we're keeping our eyes open because when you talk to the technologists, clearly the question of artificial intelligence... Um, robotics, um, 3D printing, everything else, you can see the potential for actually making big labor-saving changes, particularly in particular sectors. But having said that, the global problem at the moment is low productivity, not high productivity. We've seen productivity falling, not rising. So there's a productivity paradox. And there are various interpretations as to why that's the case. Um, I don't think anybody's got it completely right, but I do think that probably low demand, low overall growth, the fact that companies then don't have the incentives to try and scale up a lot of technologies and get them into new products and new markets much more broadly is one of the factors. So we've got to keep our feet on the ground. And the gap I hear going to both discussions between you know, technologists who think the world is going to be totally transformed tomorrow and economists who are kind of looking at this and saying, well, you know, What's new in this is pretty large. And, and in a way, we and our members are in the middle of that. That is John Evans. He is the General Secretary of the Trade Union Advisory Committee to the OECD, speaking to Bruce Edwards from the International Monetary Fund. It's 17.45 Central African Time, your economic news. South African economist Mike Schusler says uh, the margin squeeze on South African banks has started following the announcement by ratings agency Standard & Poor's to downgrade seven financial institutions in the country. The agency says this was necessary as it could, it could not rank local banks above the foreign currency sovereign credit ratings. Schusler says banks will start paying more to raise capital in the market which will have a negative impact on the economy. Banking stocks have lost value on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange since South African President Jacob Zuma's unpopular cabinet reshuffle, which resulted in the removal of Praven Godan as finance minister. SNP downgraded South Africa's foreign currency credit rating to junk status on Monday. FNB, Nedbank, Investec, APSA are among the banks that have been affected by this. Schusler explains. The margin squeeze on South African banks has started. And that means that I'll make less of a profit. And that's why their prices fell in the last while. And I think mm-hmm. they're down about 15% from when the finance minister was recalled from London. Today, they're down about 3%. So ultimately, you know, we're looking at a situation where they will have to be very, very careful when lending. They are going to be even more tight-fisted than before. And that obviously has an impact on the economy because if somebody that previously could get a home loan and now cannot get a home loan, you know, it has repercussions. The estate agent doesn't get paid. The person selling the property can't get paid. The other person has to keep paying rent maybe. And that has an impact. Nigeria's cabinet has approved 1.3 billion US dollars of loans from international lenders to fund the newly licensed Development Bank of Nigeria. Nigerian Finance Minister Kemi Ediason says the money is made up of 500 million dollars from the World Bank, 450 million dollars from the African Development Bank, 200 million dollars from German State Bank KFW, and 130 million dollars from France State Development Agency. Ariosan says uh, the loan facility is still subject to approval by the National Assembly. And Africa's prime real estate markets have recorded mixed performances in the last two years as the continent readjusts to a decline in global commodity prices. This year's Night Frank Africa report released in Nairobi in Kenya on Wednesday says real estate demand from oil companies and associated services sector has fallen in all driven econo- African-driven economies. Francophone uh, countries are, however, enjoying increased tenant demand from growing middle classes. The Angolan capital, Luanda, is the worst hit. Cities like Cape Town in South Africa is among the most stable locations, while Nairobi is currently the most sought-after location. Sarah Kimani reports in Nairobi. 
The report paints a positive outlook for sub-Saharan Africa's real estate markets. It indicates that a growing volume of capital is now targeted at the region's property sector. Like all sectors of the continent's economy, a dip in commodity prices is being reflected in Africa's real estate markets according to this year's Night Frank Africa report. The Angolan capital Luanda is the most expensive prime office location at $80 per square meter per month, followed by Lagos in Nigeria at $60. $7 per month and Jamina in Chad at $55 per square meter per month. Kenya, according to the report, is first emerging as a hub for real estate investors. Meanwhile, uh, Kenya has fully sold its debut mobile phone based bond worth uh, $1.45 million with the investor demand forcing the issue to be closed ahead of time. The East African nation started selling the three-year bond called M. Akiba on March 23rd, becoming the first to issue a mobile phone-based bond in the world. The offer was open for three weeks but closed on Wednesday when the target amount was reached. Financial indicators uh, the US dollar is trading at 13.68 South African rents, at 10.50 Botswana Pula, and 9.5 Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.80 to the British pound and 0.93 against the euro. The commodities market uh, gold $1,253, platinum $955 per fine ounce. The spot price of Brent crude oil has gone down to $54.10 per barrel, meaning that countries like South Africa will have a cheaper fuel as it it has begun uh, already midnight yesterday. And that's how it's looking. Thank you very much, Usani Sam, for your sports news. Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibu Dimakura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. The government of Madagascar has honored the president of the Confederation of African Football, Ahmad Ahmad, with a national award for his election as the head of the continent's football governing body at a function held on Wednesday in Antananarivo. On the occasion, Ahmad was elevated to the rank of Grand Officer of the National Order. In his acceptance speech, Ahmad declared to fly the fire and the nation's flag high and work hard to improve the status of African football. Five times world champions Brazil has returned to what they consider their rightful place at the top of the FIFA rankings for the first time in seven years. Brazil have enjoyed an impressive revival since Dede replaced Dunga as their national team head coach last year, winning all nine matches they have played under his leadership, including eight World Cup qualifiers. They continued their run in March with a 4-1 win over Uruguay and a 3-0 win over Paraguay to welcome or rather become the first side to book their place at next year's World Cup in Russia with four games to spare. Now Brazil, who replaced arch-rivals Argentina at the top, previously led the rankings going into the 2010 FIFA World Cup where they were eliminated by the Netherlands in the quarterfinals. Since then they have suffered a a string of embarrassments with elimination by Paraguay at successive Copa America tournaments in 2011 and 2015 and their infamous 7-1 loss to Germany at the 2014 FIFA World Cup semi-final. Now Argentina lost their place after last week's 2-0 defeat in Bolivia which has left them strong struggling to qualify for the 2018 FIFA World Cup. Four of the top five teams in the rankings announcement by FIFA on Thursday are from South America. Chile are in fourth position, Colombia in fifth, and Germany sandwiched in between in third position. Egypt are Africa's best-placed team in 19th position, while Asia's top side are 28th-placed Iran. 
And on to rugby news, Springbok 7's coach Neil Powell is quietly confident that his Blitzborger team can continue their good form in the HSBC World Rugby 7 Series at this weekend's HSBC Pacific Hong Kong 7s tournament. Now, the South Africans have contested all six finals played so far in the series and will be chasing their first title in Hong Kong when the tournament starts on Friday morning. Now, Powell has selected four players who have not not yet experienced the conundrum of the Hong Kong National Stadium before. Salvin Davids will make his debut. Stedman Guns as well as Zane Davids are fairly new to the series, while Dalen Sage did not travel to Hong Kong last year in his first full season on the circuit. And finally, in tennis news, Marcus Ondruska, captain of South Africa's Davis Cup team, knows very well that Slovenia will not be a walkover when the two teams meet in this weekend's Davis Cup Euro Africa Zone Group 2 Round 2 tie at the Irene Country Club in Pretoria. Now, both teams are in the final stages of preparations and are looking to play some great tennis this coming weekend. Ondruska believes that they can beat their counterparts. Well, I think they're a very strong squad. Uh, they have a guy who's here, Gregor Zemla, uh, who has been inside the top 50 in the world. He reached the fourth round of Wimbledon one year. So he's very experienced. Um, he played here last time in Soweto, uh, where South Africa won. But this was many years ago. And, you know, he's, he's had opportunities to play in altitude in the meantime. And he's certainly more experienced now than he was back then. So he's not going to be very easy to beat over here. Um, they have another player, Blaž Kavčić, who was just as good, um, and you know, it seems fortunate at this stage he is not here, or he's not going to be coming. Um, so, you know, while that is nice for us, it also presents uh, something else because we don't really know very much about the youngsters. And as they practice this week, you know, we're going to be taking a look at them and trying to figure them out and see if we can come up with some good game plans to be uh, successful over this weekend. The Zaya Sports News at the hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Your time is 17.55 Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. Sudanese president on a state visit to Ethiopia. Gambians casting their ballots in the first parliamentary elections since Yaya Jameh. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Superman as only producer, Leander Mahmoud, technical producer, Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. Send us emails. Info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. And SMS, we're on plus 27-796-957-930. Plus 27-796-957-930. Tweet us on Channel Africa 1. We leave you with Nguwelo by Robbie Malinga and Fiso.
Takulandirani ndi manjaviri panopachinyanja service.